Kimberly C. Paul. As I travel throughout each state, I realize that death is just a moment. It is how we live until that moment that matters. Finding connection with friends, family, and complete strangers. Journey with me. This is the Live Well, Die Well Tour. Welcome to Death by Design Podcast. We're here today with Garrett Colwell, and he is the founder of the Kitchen Table Conversations. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Kimberly. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. How's life with you? I'm doing well. What part of the world are you in now? I'm in Wilmington, North Carolina. Oh, really? So Wilmington, North Carolina is uh, more towards the eastern part of the state, closer to the water. Yeah, it's right on the beach, and we're about 45 minutes uh, north of Myrtle Beach, which I don't know why I choose that as a reference, but everyone seems to know where. Yeah, okay. I know that you uh, you made your way through Texas, and there were, we were in touch at one point uh, briefly that you were maybe coming to Austin, but I, I think you changed plans and never made it to Austin or whatnot. Yeah, I was I was in Austin for one overnight, and it was... Uh, it was really a quick stay because I had booked a paid uh, gig in Fort Worth. So uh, it was, I moved through fairly quickly, but sure. so you're in Austin. Yeah. You and I correspond on you, you know, where you're in San Antonio, I think. Oh, wow. Okay. Just, and please forgive like, me. Morning. I I talked to so many people. So uh, I, I wish I could keep everyone straight. Now, do you know, Kate, um, the great, um, <laughs> is uh, um, kind of give you a point of reference with Kate is that uh, I've been working with Reimagine to bring the Reimagine mm-hmm. Festival to Austin. Oh, wow. As the first festival that would be done outside of New York or San Francisco. Well, Brad Wolf is a personal friend of mine. Yeah. Yeah. I talk to Brad on a regular basis and also I'm working very diligently with uh, Dara. Uh, oh, Yeah. Their, uh, their their director of uh, programming and so um on we're doing actually we're working on a grief series that is in the already done it's all but we've been working the last couple of months and bringing uh bj miller and david kessler and hope um edelman oh wow hope's a personal friend of mine yeah <laughs> oh your, your name job i know bj and i drink bourbon and i've never met david kessler but know of his work yeah and i work very closely with david and um and then uh, Hope Edelman, I just was introduced to her and I'm taking a class from her now on her new book called The After Grief. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah, it is. I think that I think that's a it's an area of grief that really doesn't get talked about very much. It just simply is, you know, well, are you done yet? And then we move on, you know. Yeah. Well, my uh, I lost my wife um, about 21 months ago. Almost today, as a matter of fact, today. Oh my gosh. And so, um, but I can. Unexpected? Uh, no, no, it's after uh, we married on the 1st of November of 2014, and 22 days later, she got her diagnosis. Holy Stage crap. Or subcutaneous melanoma. <gasps> melanoma? Yeah. Well, subcut- it's in the subcutaneous, so there's no point of uh, entry from the skin, as it were. It's coming really? within. It's melanoma that actually is generated um, 
from uh, somewhere we have pigment, like the bowel or the eyes or somewhere mm -hmm. pigment. And so, uh, but she lived for four years, uh, three months and two weeks after that. Wow. Well, my boyfriend uh, that started this whole journey of mine, he died of melanoma uh -huh. and it took about 18 months to, 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 for him to get really tired of the roommate and he had to go. Um, yeah, it, he was an FBI agent, just caught it way too in four stage. It had already uh, spread and uh, he, he, the thing, crazy thing is he didn't have any symptoms or the symptoms were so mild that he thought it was just daily living and he just went through the academy. So he was sore. And so who knows? That Hirsch, sucks. Hirsch uh, showed up on her, on, on her right thigh as what looked like, and it felt like a hematoma from you know, oh, wow. going into the desk or something, you know? And huh. then, um, that was in April. And then August of that year, she, uh, a lump came up in her breast. And it was not a lump, it was a tumor. And we couldn't figure out how the two were related or if they were related or anyway, we saw, I think we wound up going through half a dozen doctors before we finally found a surgeon that says, you know, I have no idea whether these two are related, but the only way to find out is to biopsy them both. Yeah. So he did a core biopsy of both, sent it off to the lab and it took, the, it took two labs and had to go to Emory before they figured out what it was. Holy crap. So, and then by that time, it was metastasizing at, um, at a rate of speed that, um, particularly after, right after the diagnosis, it was apparent that, you know, we wake up each morning and there'd be a new lump somewhere on her body. Yeah. Because it yeah. throughout the subcutaneous. So, let me, did, did kitchen table conversations come from your wife's death or was it because she was a co-founder, right? Yeah, no, she was alive at the time that we were investigating this in 2017. She was, you know, she had the diagnosis. She was going through treatment. We were uh, on immunotherapy. Some new immunotherapy drugs had just been approved, and so she was able to get uh, access to them. But uh, her clinical trial actually is what probably saved her life, which was the first time they ever combined an immunotherapy and a chemotherapy drug together. And this is wow. Anderson. So, um we were working with so so you guys created this after her diagnosis, but she lived a good four years. So she was able to. And and how did this evolve? I mean, was it because of her diagnosis that you guys started to think about advanced care planning and advanced directives, or how did that evolve? Yeah, the advanced directive interest. You know, I've been involved in hospice since 1987. Okay, so this is nothing new to you. Not to me. It, it wasn't necessarily, and she had also experienced uh, two significant losses in her life. Her mother uh, died, uh, had, was diagnosed with colon cancer and died, and then her husband um, had esophageal cancer and died, and that basically took up her 30s. She was caregiver for both of them, and so she was intimately familiar with you know disease and loss, and of course, she was a, a marriage and family therapist. She had a master's in spiritual psychology, and so she pursued, you know, supporting people uh, as they were going through uh, different aspects of their lives. But as far as the advanced care plan, I mean, here's an example. When I was involved in, initially in hospice, I was involved uh, providing respite care as a volunteer. And then over the course of the years as they unfolded, I also worked as a on-call um, hospice and also an on-call hospital chaplain. And one night I was called in. You know, it was middle of the night, early in the morning, 
And I was there because someone was actively dying in ICU. This was at a hospital in Boulder, Colorado. And so I came into the waiting room and I could see, I could hear, oh, I could overhear the, a family arguing, angry at one another about what they were supposed to do next when it came to caring for their mother. And so I realized that, you know, that is not necessarily the way I would want my family to have to deal with if I was in a situation like that. So it always stuck with me and, until we came to understand not only our own journey with Kinslow and what we needed to do to make sure her, we were, I was clear as to what she wanted because she had appointed me as her medical power of attorney, but that she was also clear that the journey that she was on was the journey that she, the route that she wanted to take, the treatments she wanted to receive and the kind of quality of life that she wanted. And she desperately wanted to be here and not, she was just committed to being here. And so she basically should have been gone in about six to eight months, typically in something like this. It was so aggressive, but she was able to stay here for four years, um, over four years as a result of her not only determination, but also being informed. Because if you're going to make a decision, an informed decision, you have to become informed. And education is such an important part of this. So we did a lot of time, we spent a lot of time researching both of us and then comparing notes and then you know, bubbling that up, if as it were, considering and reflecting. And she then was able to decide and make decisions that were informed based upon what she knew she wanted and what was available to help her have that quality of life. And that's exactly wow. what we did. One of the wow. things I tell about this is that, you know, when you're in hospice, which she was the last part of her life, is that she was on um, methadone uh, and she was also on morphine. And so those two narcotics, as you can imagine, uh, make you a bit uh, groggy and uh, sure. fuzzy. And in her case, she was not happy with that at all. She's very sensitive to drugs. And she said, I, I, can't, I can't do it. I, don't, I, I obviously want the pain relief, but I don't want the, the effect that I'm getting. And so we talked to a couple of uh, hospice nurses and who had been doing this for a long time. And they said, oh, by the way, you might consider Adderall. Mm. And I said, oh, really? How does that work? And so we talked with the doc, got a prescription for uh, Adderall, and we gave her 10 milligrams at 11 o'clock in the morning after she had received you know, her normal uh, cyclic dose of, of uh, morphine and uh, methadone. And she was able to be alert for at least three or four hours so she could hold court. Oh, wow. So <laughs> she could oh, engage wow. in conversation, and she was present, and she was articulate. She was just it was owing oh, such a heart warming to sit at the doorway and watch her interact with her friends and family and have her be, you know, fully present for them and them present to her. Oh, wow. That, that little you know, trick. Those, those, those old tricks. hospice nurses, man, they, they're, they're, they, you can't make them anymore. They know what they're doing for sure to give, give yeah. you. A matter, a matter of fact, her, the de- death doula that we had was uh, Diana Cochran. And so um, she, you know, of course, she has got a great deal of information. There's a whole bunch of things we learned as a result of having that uh, treasure trove of experience that we wouldn't know how to access or even if it was accessible uh, unless we had known Deanna. So, oh, wow. So not only this is what I'm trying to really put forth is is that hospice can be incorporated with a death doula. The Absolutely. more services you, 
have at the end better for the caregiver, better for the individual. And I, and I am the first one to step first in line to say hospice are really good at pain control and listening to patients and families and adjusting that or adding something to get that quality that we so much desire. Um, but de- so talk to me a little bit about what that death doula did for you. Well, I think there's a couple of things that we, you know, we'd back up a little bit from the standpoint of saying, when do we go on hospice? Right now, the average time on hospice is less than three weeks and we're 50 years into this whole idea of what hospice offers. So there's an issue with regards to hospice and the sense that we're giving up. And we're not necessarily, I didn't feel that we were giving up as much as I felt that we were embracing the reality. At the same time, we were also onboarding a set of uh, support uh, from the interdisciplinary team that we didn't have access to before as a, as a single caregiver. And so there was the, the, that decision was once it was made, then there was a tremendous relief and that I could actually be, you know, spend more time being her husband than being her caregiver. And that was a big lesson in this process of understanding how this, this thing works at the, the dynamic at the end of life. And so, um, the hot, then when we had Dana come in, Dana was able to provide her with uh, some support that she wasn't able to get from hospice and mainly on the spiritual side. Oh, wow. Was, you know, certainly confirming what we had known medically, confirming what we had, had thought was possible, but at the same time coming up with like this idea of what we could use, uh, we could use uh, Adderall to help keep her alert, you know, and out of the uh, opioids fog. Uh, so that she could interact and have the quality of life she wanted. Things like that, that we would not have learned otherwise or been have access to. So her quality of life would have been much different without the death doula. Oh, wow. That makes me so happy. So happy because I do strongly believe that the death doula movement is a movement that I want to participate in because yeah. I just... I just want people around me who are experiencing my death as well as me to have all the resources at your fingertips to be able to walk through this uh, collectively and and together. Uh, Wow. What a story. Yeah. And the death tool also offered in this case and offered a dimension that wasn't necessarily conventionally available through hospice. And it's not that hospice was lacking. It just is this dimension of um, a holistic approach to it. The hospice is very holistic. That's what palliative care, receiving palliative care during a hospice um, is about, you know, treating the whole person. And this is where I think hospice and the death doulas converge, and they they really do work well together. Um, But the idea is the hospice, um, the, the death doula actually gives us an opportunity to have the conversation about spirituality, the holistic approach to you know, cognitively what's going on spiritually, physically, and how it all weaves together. In addition, they offer an opportunity for that conversation to extend to the family. Mm. They're more actively involved because they're more present. So instead of it being um, someone who comes in, you know, on a on an appointment, like a chaplain, a social worker, or a nurse, uh, it seems to me that the death doula is there more of the time and in doing being able to access the family and be present more of the time, then they're able to integrate and help the family uh, process and see things from different points of view if they're willing. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, I've found many people have said that death doulas are more pliable and and ebbing and flowing with family members as things occur. Hospice, because of the regulations, which, oh, I, I can go on for that, but less, the regulations they're they're restricted to, you know, productivity and and uh, you know our visits and documenting, which you know in all we all want to have double checks and make sure people are doing sure. good work. But I I know many of hospice nurses and many hospice chaplains and social workers and CNAs that that are having difficult times with the with the Medicare. Uh, dictation and many of them are going on to a second career the death doulas that's what we found too in our when we were doing our grief classes i'm i was just absolutely um impressed and just excited to find that a number of doulas would attend our grief classes uh, educational classes because they wanted to add that dimension of understanding to what they were offering their families Hmm. that's an important part of this because as soon as you receive diagnosis you enter into what we call anticipatory grief. Sure. So you're now you're grieving an expected loss because, you know, I can tell you that 22 days later after being married to the woman I was going to spend the rest of my life with and receiving that diagnosis, it was shattering for both of us mm. because we had thought, well, we got another 20 years and God, we're going to have a good time. We're gonna- it's our time. It was our, it was not, it was our time, our time, you know, individually as a couple and it was just such an honor to be her husband. I was just oh wow to realize that we weren't that probably at the time of diagnosis we didn't give up hope. But at the time of diagnosis, you think, well, you know, you take a deep breath and think, well, now and now what? What what will we do? And so the idea is that we entered into a place where we were grieving the fact that you know we didn't even go on a honeymoon. I mean, the, the, oh, wow. the dark side of this is that I tell people that, well, we got married on November 1st, got the diagnosis on the 22nd, we spent our honeymoon at MD Anderson. Because that's mm. pretty much what happened. And, but in that process, of course, we were grieving the loss of a life that we, that we were not going to live. But we had... Absolutely. We had an expectation. The dreams. Yeah. yeah so the that, travel. The... Yeah. Oh, this just, you know, sipping coffee in the morning and having intellectual conversation. I can, yeah, I feel that. Um, She had a brilliant mind. She was just like, oh my gosh, it was amazingly, uh, not only intelligent, but uh, graceful, kind. And she had this profound ability to have insight, deep insight into the dynamics of the, of the, of our human uh, in nature, you know, so it was always a, always a, a a delightful conversation to have with her. Even as her partner. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, wow, man. So, wow. That just blows me away. The love. I even feel it. Um, talking to you. That's really beautiful. Um, not many of us get to feel that. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then have it, have it go away. Uh, that's my, uh, uh, my heart goes out to you and, and look at the work that you're doing now and her honor and her memory. Right. That's, and that's an important part of this too, is part of the story. And the reason for adding grief as a, uh, an offering of support for others is that it gives me an opportunity to continue to and authentically mourn the loss of her mm. by being able to talk about her, but also to tell the stories and the things that we learned um, along her journey, 
not only does it memorialize her, but it gives me a chance to, you know, continue to mourn authentically uh, the loss of her uh, from my life. You know, I, I just finished this uh, Live Well, Die Well tour. Thank you, COVID-19. A few states shy of my goal. And I found over the years talking daily about Rob, and I finally figured it out that people that we love that have died don't truly die unless we stop talking about them. Because I feel your wife is just as much alive right here in this conversation than because I feel the connection with her through you. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a way, it's almost as a way like how do we journey and, and learn how to grieve well and accept a new dimension of the relationship. You know, what was interesting for me is uh, spending as much time as I have had the privilege to, privilege to with David Kessler. What he teaches is the fact that the love never dies. And the fact that you really are learning to love them in their absence. You love them while they were here, they're physically here. But now I've learned to love her in her absence. And that has been a profound journey that has um, and, uh, made me aware of the, of the dimension of love that I would not mm. be aware of without the loss, of course. But the idea is that she continues to live on in my heart. And not that that is the only point, but it is the point when it comes to how love continues. So I've learned to love her in her absence, and I continue to do that. I continue to have conversations with her on a very regular basis. And I'm good for you. But the idea is that um, I'm also in this life in, in the, out of the ashes of this loss comes an awareness about how love works uh, beyond someone's death. Mm. That's important to, for people to know that yes, you want to resist the idea that the loss has taken place, but at the same time, as you continue to dose yourself with the reality of the death, you come to the one, one of the, you know, the most important points in time, which is acknowledging the death and the loss. Uh, so then you can, once you do that, able to move into a different perspective or a different engagement with that love, with that pain. Now, you know, pain is one of those things that is uh, one is is inevitable. I mean, mm. but, you know, suffering is optional, and suffering is what we do when we hold on to what it what has already happened. And it's not that you shouldn't, it's not normal, natural part of grieving, but at some point, if you can remember them with more love than pain over the course of time and actively mourning, because oftentimes people don't understand that grief and mourning are two different things. Absolutely. So they bring Absolutely. them together and they think, oh, the grief and mourning are the same. Well, actually they're not. And the idea is that grief is what we feel and think on the inside and mourning is what we do when we express as Dr. Wolfelt says, it's grief gone public. Right. It's the expression. That's where it's witnessed. That's where we find that we're much better in a group of people that can witness without judgment what our pain is so that we can see it and we can feel it and we can engage in it without thinking that we're doing the right or wrong thing. But we're able to you know, give those mo- emotions motion. And that's what mourning is about. It sounds like you guys journey through dying well. Yeah. That if it had to occur, you know, did because it, it, it does it, it does sound sort of funny, but it, and weird, but you know, we're all going to die, and and my hope is, do I will I do it well? You know, being informed, being 
you know, able to make decisions. Um, because if you're not, if my quality and quality is like a, a thumbprint, you know, it's different for everyone. You know, can I base at my last days, months, year on what matters most to me? And it yeah. sounds like you were able to incorporate a little bit of that. Yeah, I believe that to be true, that we were able to incorporate it. And I think that's kind of the underlying importance of understanding the value of doing advanced care planning. Because mm. advanced care planning really doesn't begin with a document. It begins much earlier on in the cycle, in the process, which is personal reflection. And that personal reflection is based upon what you value. Then what it is that you value most? And then what do you believe you'd value most at the end of life? And so it's a process. You've got to learn how to, and it's a learn process because it's not something we typically talk about. Albeit at the kitchen table, we learn a lot of different things at home. This is not necessarily one of those topics that, um, that organically just bubbles to the surface unless, uh, and I was fortunate in my home that uh, we talked about death and dying as just being a normal part of life. But in most homes, that's not the case. And so right. consequently, it's a learned skill to say, okay, let me take a moment and reflect upon first, what matters most to me in my life? The number one regret of, the, of a person who is dying that we learned from uh, Bonnie Ware was the fact that we are living a life according to what other th people think. <laughs> Absolutely. We should live. And so we live a life, you know, outside of ourselves and not from within ourselves. And so consequently, that opportunity for advanced care planning is, is to have that personal reflection and not be too quick to get to the document. I mean, the document is all well and good. It's, it's kind of like the, the, uh, the finish line, the final exam, as it were, but that's way later. I mean, it's after taking time to pause, reflect, what matters most to me, what matters most, I believe, to me at the end of my life. Keeping in mind that that may change um, as you approach based upon your, your condition of health. But the point is, is that you have the reflection, you have an opportunity to decide what it is that you want, and then you have an opportunity also to decide who's going to speak for you. The next step in this, who's going to speak for you? If you can't speak for yourself, someone who is going to be able to represent you. And that is a, a really sacred honor to be able to do that for someone. Um, and then from there, you go, well, how do I take this to my family? I've got to learn how to have that conversation. How do I have, you know, how do I discuss this with my family? And then how do we discuss this with my doctors? And you know all of that. Uh, then you get to documentation, right? And this is this is what I say: the documents are great, the conversations are key because in those conversations you can't put that. Oh, Kimberly, when she's dying, she wants fresh flowers every day. You know, it it, it really allow or it's an invitation, and when you have these conversations, to have invite people on a journey that only you will experience. But somehow, individuals can journey with you in a small way, providing what you. It's almost like creating that fingerprint that's uniquely yours, but also allowing people to to journey with you, even though it's not the same. It. I think it's really important, especially when people are starting to grieve, if they could know that bringing flesh, fresh flowers would work. Hey, I, people would trip over each other to do that. They, people just don't know, A, what to say, B, what to do. And it's always this, let me know if I can do something for you. And that is the worst thing because that individual will never let you know because she doesn't want to burden you or he doesn't want to burden you. It's like, you know what? I'm dropping off dinner tonight. 
six o'clock. Is that good with you? It's like they need someone because their world is so out of control. They need someone to just say, I'm dropping off dinner tonight at six. Yeah, you're in a state of shock. You're in a state of, of uh, psychic numbing. You're basically dealing with the fact that there's a, a, someone that's going to you know, die here shortly or not too long from now, but they're on that course. And so consequently, you're, you're, you're hanging out in what we call liminal space. You're in that betwixt in between place. And so when someone says, you know, call me if you need anything, you go, that's not happening. I don't even know. I don't even know what I need. Yeah, right. So it's like, but when someone comes and says, I'm bringing dinner at six o'clock, you say, oh, God, thank you. I wasn't even, the deep, you know, I didn't even know what I was going to cook for dinner. Now we've got dinner. Oh, my gosh, what a blessing that was. Thank right. you for being real specific. It's just like when you talk to people, say, you know, in, in a situation like this, instead of saying, how are you doing? The question really could be, how are you doing today? Mm. And that gives some specificity in a time frame in which the person can respond from who is, believe me, having been there, it's like you're totally scattered. You're focused on the next task at hand to ensure that the comfort is maintained at a level that is acceptable and talking about things in a global sense beyond what's happening right in front of me uh, as something I'm, I wasn't capable of doing. Oh, wow. So That's the more specific, really important. Yeah, so the yeah. more specific you can be, the easier it is for me to respond and for me to actually, for you actually to know, because keep in mind, it's not about you as much as it is your giving, of course, and your, des- your desire is to know what you can do to make sure that you give at the level that they want to. But that only happens by listening to what it is that they're either doing or what they're saying and how they may respond to more specific questions than just saying, let me know if, if I can help. Yeah. No, th- this is intriguing to me is, the kitchen table conversation, the title of this really sweet uh, platform that you've created to talk about advanced care planning. Why, where did that come from? Was it just because you and your wife would talk at the kitchen table? Well, it's the metaphor of home and hearth, you know, that oh, yeah, sure. we come together and, you know, in every place I've ever lived, the kitchen has been the hub of activity. <laughs> Everybody winds up for some reason, and regardless of how big or how small the kitchen is, everybody winds up in the kitchen at some point in the time of the visit, you know? Right. So it's, it's a, it's just a hub of activity. And so that's, and that's where we break bread together. That's where we, you know, our, you know, our parents model emotions for us, where we talk about the gossip of what's happening to whom and where and how, and, you know, who's misbehaving, who's not. I mean, all the, the good stuff and in the exchange of communication and day-to-day life, uh, what happens around the kitchen table and often, oftentimes. So the idea is that, you know, why not? These conversations, we encourage people to have them um, at the kitchen table versus in the ICU. Oh, totally true. So why Totally not? true. Yeah. And then if you have them at the kitchen table, you've got time to reflect. You've got time, you know, over the course of time to explore and to be able to see what works and what doesn't work and for you to find your voice or find the voice of your wishes. And so that's amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. And you know, this platform, it's what, how, how many years old three is about three, three and a half years old. old and your wife passed away. Uh, the February 12th of 2019. So she was very much a part of the creation she of was, uh-huh. 
And and the thing is, you're you know you're now in Austin or have been in Austin. You're trying to get reimagined. It's like the 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 whole movement has moved to a whole new level. You've put in some grief work because that's what you've been doing since her passing. And and now you're you you really why is it important for you to put Austin on the map when it comes to reimagine or grief work or advanced care planning? I think it's important for people. Uh, regardless of where they live, to understand that they have a choice. It's your life, it's your body, it's your choice. And oftentimes, because this topic is not something we talk about in everyday life on a regular basis, it's to bring attention to the fact that that conversation is available. It, we can have it in a safe place. We can have it in, in what we call the no judgment zone, where you can actually explore what it is that you want, what it is that you don't want and not be judged one way or the other as to whether it's right or wrong, because gosh, it's there's no right or wrong way to do this. There's just the way that best aligns with your core values uh, is what we want you know you to understand that you have the option of that taking place for on your behalf. And so outlining what those wishes are ahead of time, also big, big, big plus is that it relieves family of burden. And oftentimes this word burden is something, oh, I don't want to be a burden. Well, I can appreciate that. At the same time, if you don't tell us what it is that you want, if you don't you know, inform your family as to what your wishes are and your medical professionals, then basically they're burdened now to make decisions on your behalf. And they walk into their grief in what we call complicated grief. They create a complicated situation because they've made a decision on your behalf, thinking that they may or may not have made that decision in the right or wrong direction because they really didn't know what you wanted, but they had to make the decision anyway based on healthcare circumstances. And now they're walking into their grief with uh, oftentimes guilt and shame. You know, you bring up a, a perfect um, example that people confuse. In North Carolina, we call it healthcare power of attorney. You guys in Texas call it? Medical power of attorney. Medical power of attorney. And this is the person that speaks with for you in a medical setting about your care that you, when you can't win, underline, you cannot speak for yourself. But many individuals have a hard time even becoming a healthcare power of attorney because they're like, oh, I'm going to have to make decisions. And I tell them, no, when you become a healthcare power of attorney, you don't speak for anyone, you speak as them. So decisions have made, been made, and you now hold those decisions because the individual who cannot speak has already told you what they want. You're just making sure that those who are caring for her in a medical setting or any other setting really, truly understands what she wants. So you don't speak for anyone. You're not going to be made, the, the perfect scenarios, you're not going to be making any decisions. The decisions were made by the person who could, can't speak now. Now you're just holding, you're speaking as them. And that's where I want people to understand is, is you're going to have to have those conversations. And if you're a healthcare power of attorney or a medical power attorney, a proxy or an agent, if you have not sat down and talked to the individual that you're representing, that is where I highly encourage you to do um, because you must know where the person is coming from so you can speak as them. It's a sacred it's a sacred task. Absolutely. I'm standing in for as if I am the, my my wife is speaking through me, and so that was that's my that would be my job, and what an honor. Yes. At the same time to hold that as a sacred um, offering of service, because it is an opportunity for you to honor 
them and to make sure that you advocate for what it is that they want on their behalf. And so in some cases, you'll be faced with making decisions that may be uncomfortable for the doctor and the nurses, but at the same time, they are what the patient wanted. And so therefore, you've got to be able to stand in that place and say, this is what she wanted. Let's and stand the ground. And what, and what can we do to work together to ensure Correct. that happens? So it's not, it doesn't have to be looked at as being confrontational. Right. It can more be looked at as being an advocate for someone who is not able to speak for themselves, but you know exactly what they want. And therefore, you've agreed to, through um, an agreement with them, that you will be the one standing in and making those requests. Yeah, because some people will make some decisions that now they're in a medical environment that those decisions could bring them more harm. And so you have to collaborate with the medical team saying, this is what she ultimately wanted. But if that's going to cause her more pain and grief, how can collaboratively we work together to at least um, make the effort to meet that goal of what she wanted? I would go back to the example of saying, I, uh, I want the pain control, I want the morphine, I want the methadone, but I don't want to be groggy. It's a very small example, but it's a really good example of saying, we found a solution that in the last two weeks of her life, she was able to talk to every single person that wanted to talk to her and that she wanted to speak with either present or on the phone. And so how was that not a good thing? Well, I think it was, it was a home run. It was. Oh, complete home run. So you, um, but, but it was through collaboration and through multiple inputs from different people from different levels of experience that we found a solution. So this isn't meant to be confrontational and that somehow a doctor and a nurse are going to try and go against the family's wishes or what the healthcare agent is trying to uh, um, talk about and ask for, that's not the case. They're, they're wanting to do what's in the best interest of the patient as well. Now, they may have strong opinions, but at the same time, when you sit down and say, what can we do to work this thing through based upon what we know she wanted and what we have to offer? Because everyone in this case, in this situation, in this scenario, is a human being. Absolutely. Absolutely. So tell, tell us where we can find the Kitchen Table. Uh, kitchen Table Conversations is the name of the, of the nonprofit. And you can find it at kitchentableconversations.org. And what will people find on your website? Well, what we do is we have created a program called the three D's of advanced care planning, how to decide, discuss, and document your end of life wishes. And they offer that as a, a three-part series of now webinars it used to be in-person workshops. And perhaps one day again, it will be. I hope. Now we're offering three different workshops. One on the first D, which is decide then discuss, and then document. And we go over all the documents that you need in order to, uh, the statutory documents for the state in which you live. Uh, it doesn't have to be just Texas. Um, but the, so you understand exactly what your documents look like and what you need to do and how you fill them out. And we primarily focus on the living will and the medical power of attorney and also out of hospital uh, do not resuscitate orders. Sure, but, sure. What about Polst and Molst as well, depending upon what state you're in as far as where that fits, understanding what palliative care is in relationship to hospice. And I mean, it's a really rich dynamic. It's not death by PowerPoint. It's right. You receive a packet of information, a handout at the very beginning. It's about um, 150 or so pages long. And in that are embedded workbooks, like from the Conversation Project as an example, or from prepareforyourcare.org. Um, 
from different, many different sources so that we actually go through the paperwork together as you, you know, move from deciding what it is that you want and who's going to speak for you to how to discuss what the icebreakers are and how to have those conversations with not only your health, your loved ones, but also your healthcare agents. And then of course, at the end of the last one, we talk about the uh, documentation. And then we also offer, um, an opportunity to become educated on grief. We've got three or four different workshops or webinars we offer um, on grief. So, you know, finding meaning uh, after loss is one of them. We've, uh, one is, you know, um, why men grieve differently and how to support them. So it was a sure. popular one because we're oftentimes confused as guys. We're, you know, we're protectors, we're providers. And, you know, being vulnerable, it doesn't really work in that environment too well. And at the same time, our, our, you know, the women around us want to support us and they're, you know, trying to figure out how to get to us, but they're coming at it from the point of view that they want to talk about it. And, you know, typically guys in grief, I, I'll, you know, I'm going to be in the back. I'm going to right. <laughs> in the car because that's what I do. Right. So there's a funny story. The, the woman's on the phone. Her husband is, uh, you know, she's telling about her husband and saying, my, my husband is just not grieving right. He's just not, he's not, he's not talking about it, what the grief. He's just, he hasn't even cried. And the therapist is saying, well, what's your husband doing right now? She said, well, he's in the backyard cutting down some trees. And, he said, and the therapist said, he's doing exactly what he needs to do. Exactly. You know, guys do it through action and don't necessarily yeah. do it through conversation. So there's those types of workshops. We also do one on what to say, what not to say when someone's grieving, because that's one of the common ones where people wind up and saying, you know, saying things that are, uh, uncomfortable and oftentimes, you know, showing people that that is said oftentimes out of your own discomfort because you're uncomfortable with the, the messy emotions that grief, that grief is and represents. Sure. So. I love it. I love it. I love that this is coming from, uh, you know, both you and your wife. I, I think it's just a great uh, example of how we can keep those we've loved and lost and how to create a mission out of really educating people moving forward and how they can die as well as, you know, the more I talk about death, the, the more I feel like I'm, I'm trying to live well. Um, it gives me examples, but you know, it, it's, it's, it's really platforms like you that are making these inroads, grassroots efforts, um, not only now in Austin, but with the internet, it's like now a global movement. And I can't tell you how much I really appreciate you sharing your story. Yeah. And and I feel like you're an ordinary guy yeah. doing really extraordinary work. And it comes from the heart and the mind and the love you still have for your wife. So yeah, the love, you know, as, as, uh, as David said, you know, the love never dies. Yeah, I love it. Just continues to grow, and uh, it's transformative in the sense that it changes. And in that change, there is a new understanding and a deeper and a deepening. And um, you know, um, my heart continues to open, and therefore I am able to give more as a result of that, and receive more. Also, there's one comment I think that I, I you know want to just share a little bit on, and that's the idea about dying well. There seems to be a desire to, you know, frame this in such a way that you die well, and somehow that we do everything well. When in fact, right. it's, a, it's important, I think, to to consider the fact that death is inevitable. How we get there, we make all the plans in the world, and we may come to the threshold of making these decisions, 
and doing a, a complete 180. And the idea is that it's not so much about doing it well, it's about being present to what is going to be of service to us and in our best interest and align with our core values in that moment. And give ourselves permission not to necessarily project that we have to do it well or what well means. If we're going to say well, then we need to define that for ourselves. Absolutely. So we're not necessarily, um, you know, making ourselves try and achieve something that really is more about the achievement versus being in the moment. It's one of the biggest things that comes out of this, the amount of care that we can receive, not only from hospice, but also from our death doulas, is that it gives us time to relax and be present to the sacredness of what's happening. And not in a rush to do this, and not in a rush to do that, or not anxiety about that this needs to be done, or that needs to be done, or being in the middle of a decision. But the idea is to be present to the moment and the sacredness of what's taking place. Oh, I love that. And you're right. You know, words can mean something to different to everyone and, and, and things change and that's okay. And that's okay. And that's okay. okay. And, you know, we, we set ourselves up to, to really fail when we put, you know, very specific things around the whole dying process. You know, we want it to go one way, but the the best thing to do is ebb and flow with what occurs in front of you and in the moment. It's important to be clear about what it is that you want. No question about that. It's as specific as you want to be. At the same time, it's important to let go of the outcome and allow the divine momentum to be able to guide you in those moments uh, because they are ever-changing, and they can be ever-changing, particularly as you're near the end. I mean, as a matter of fact, when it came to uh, Kinslow's death, we thought we were, I mean, we had a pain episode on over the weekend, um, and now we were at Monday, and we she agreed to get a, a pain pump. And on Tuesday, she started becoming agitated, and she was like, "We the pain pump wasn't delivering enough. I had to onboard some uh, oral morphine. And that still, and that it, I was all in the, I was all in the management of the pain in the moment, and I almost missed what was going on. Oh wow! Which was that That's her restlessness wasn't about being in pain. Her restlessness was about getting ready to go. Oh wow! That's beautiful. So in that moment, she was able to, you know, I was able to see what it is that is taking place, and then uh, be present to what took place within the next few minutes, which was she left. I love it. Garrick, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. I want to be there when Reimagine comes to Austin. I I love Austin, whatever I can do to support the efforts. Um, you know, many people I adore live in Austin. I'm now adding, adding you to that list. Um, I would love to do whatever I can to support your efforts. And Garrick, thank you so much for joining Death by Design podcast today, sharing your stories. And, and sharing what the kitchen table conversations are all about is is what I'm for, is the more conversations we have, the better off we can plan for our end of life. Awesome. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer. This podcast is produced by Jason Andre with Seven Season Films. If you're interested in telling your story via podcast, look him up. You can find him at sevenseasonfilms.com.